Today on Let the Bible Speak. Today we turn to the Old Testament and an unusual phrase that has a chilling meaning for many of us today. Welcome, and in the words of the Apostle Paul to the ancient Roman Christians, the churches of Christ greet you. I'm thankful to be in your home or wherever you are right now to spend a few moments together in the Word of God. Our study today will come from one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, Amos. We call them the minor prophets only because of the length of their prophecies, not because of their scope or impact. In fact, some of the weightiest and most convicting messages to the people of God in the Old Testament came from the lips of the minor prophets. And Amos is perhaps the most powerful of all of them. Amos was not a prophet by trade. He didn't attend a prophet school or dedicate his time fully to the ministry of the Word of God. Rather, he was a sheep herder from Tekoa who God sent on a very special mission to prophesy to his sinful people up in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the short book that we have containing his prophecies is one of the most pointed and fiery of all of the Bible. It was he who warned the people to prepare to meet their God in battle because they had provoked him through their sin. He foretold of a famine that would strike the land, not of bread or of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. That is, when they would finally go seeking after a word from God, God would no longer be speaking to them. As his prophecy unfolds, he gained their attention by strongly condemning the surrounding pagan nations, and then Judah. God's kingdom people just to their south, where Amos was from. Now this was fine with the people of Israel, but Amos didn't stop there. He simply used that as a platform from which to condemn their own wickedness. Now Amos uses a strange phrase several times that I want to talk with you about today. I'll read from Amos chapter 2 and verse 4. It reads, Thus says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed." What does God mean when He says, for three transgressions and for four He will punish the people? Now He not only uses that expression in reference to the sins of Judah, but those of several other nations as well, including Israel. And it's an expression that we would do well to understand and take note of today. Was he referring to a particular group of sins which had made him angry? Well, I hope you'll stay with me to find out. That'll be the title of our sermon, For Three Sins and for Four. And I'll return with that study after a song from the congregation. Love led the Savior to dark Calvary. Wonderful love led Jesus there.
prophet Amos lived in the 8th century BC around the same time as Hosea. Jeroboam II was reigning in the northern kingdom of Israel at that time, and though that nation was rich and at peace, they were spiritually bankrupt and at war with God because of their sins. Now Amos actually lived down in the southern kingdom of Judah. He lived in the little village of Tekoa, a few miles south of Jerusalem. He was a farmer. He raised sheep and also tended to sycamore trees. In other words, he wasn't a preacher by trade, but God had a special mission for him nonetheless. He chose Amos to go up to the northern kingdom and to deliver a stern message for him, a message of judgment and coming destruction. So Amos left his sheep and his trees behind and he journeyed up to the city of Bethel. Amaziah was the high priest and Amos went to warn him, warn him and the people of what God was going to do. His sermon was really a masterpiece. He won the attention of a hostile audience by first launching into a series of prophetic attacks on their enemies from other nations. He describes these messages from God as God roaring from Zion or roaring from Jerusalem. Well, all of that was met with their enthusiastic approval. They were glad to hear someone condemn the pagan people around them, and Amos did not hold back in doing so. He started with Damascus, saying in Amos chapter 1 and verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. This likely refers to a brutal act that they had committed during war where they lined their prisoners on the ground and then took a threshing instrument, which was a heavy platform of boards with sharp stones and iron points on the bottom, and they drove it over the prisoners. Well, God took note of that atrocity, and He vowed to execute judgment on them for doing it. He then passes judgment on the Philistines, who were guilty of slave trade. Verses 6 and 7, Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces." He then in verses 9 and 10 pronounces a similar fate upon the city of Tyre and the Phoenicians for much the same reason. Uh, he judges Edom in verses 11 and 12 for relentlessly pursuing Israel with the sword. Then he aims at the Ammonites in verses 13 through 15 for the awful acts of ripping open the wombs of mothers in Gilead in an effort to wipe out the male population. Well, God was very indignant over what they had done and he vowed to, pun <clears throat> to punish them severely. Then he turns to Moab, because they had shown no respect to the king of Edom when they opened his grave and burned his bones to lime, as the Bible puts it. Now there's an important thing to take note of in all of this so far, and that is that all people of all nations are accountable to God for their behavior. Now these nations didn't have the same relationship with God as his chosen people had, and they didn't have the same revelations from God as Israel had received, but that didn't matter. They still had a moral law to abide by that they were guilty of flagrantly breaking. These nations were living, were living in rebellion to God by ignoring even the basic standard of right and wrong that every human being is subject to instinctively. Even today, God deals with His covenant people, the church, in a unique way, but that doesn't mean that He's not keenly aware and involved in what goes on in the nations of men and in the lives of people all over this world, Christian or not. God sees and He takes note of the evils and injustices and the travesties that are committed around the globe every day, and He promises to repay them with His judgment. This world is treasuring up God's wrath 
and flippantly shutting God out and refusing to submit to His Son in gospel obedience. And the Bible says that one day Christ will return with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel, and that they will be punished with everlasting destruction, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. You need to take note of that if you've never obeyed the gospel, if you've never put Christ on in baptism, if you're not a Christian and living for Him. So Amos promises that God's judgment will soon rain down on these wicked nations surrounding Israel. But then he gets a little closer to home. He sets in on the southern kingdom of Judah where he is from. And he begins tightening the noose a little. He accuses Judah of ignoring God's word. They, they didn't keep God's commandments and statutes. And instead, well, they simply did what they wanted to do. And this even led them to idolatry which has always been the height of insult against God. Now they may have possessed the word of God, but they didn't pay any attention to it. And he says that God would send the fire of his wrath down on Judah and destroy the palaces of Jerusalem. Now Amos might have gotten away with his preaching had he stopped there. As long as you're condemning everyone else, that's one thing. But that's not why Amos came to Bethel. He was there to condemn their sins. And he goes right down the list. In chapter 2, he condemns them for covetousness, for rank immorality such as sexual sin, for exploiting and taking from the poor even in the name of their religion, and then for their hypocrisy, making a mockery of worship and of God. So you see, Israel was ripe for destruction, and Amos was there to let them know it. And he essentially says in chapter 4 and verse 12, a very familiar verse in the book of Amos, that since they had refused to repent, even as God had repeatedly warned them and give them, given them opportunity to turn back to Him, that they had declared war against God and they should prepare for a conflict that they were not prepared to win. Nobody wins when they wage war against the God of heaven. But I want you to notice the phrase that occurs eight times in the first two chapters of this book. As Amos goes down the list and he pronounces judgment upon each city and nation, he says, for three transgressions and for four. In Amos chapter 1 and verse 3, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. The exact same expression is used in verse 11 about Edom and verse 13 about Ammon in chapter 2 and verse 1. It's used about Moab. And then in verse 4, Judah, all building up to Amos chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. What does he mean by this expression? Is he referring to four specific sins that God was holding against them? Or was he talking about three major sins and then one that was even greater than them? Was he referring to three sins plus four more? No, because in each case, if you'll notice, he lists their sins and there is no consistent number of sins mentioned. In fact, he mainly mentions a sin per most of these nations. Rather, he's using a rhetorical formula 
that they would well understand and that we would do well to understand today. Some call it the X plus one formula, and that was a familiar thing to the ancient Jews. Like the use of many other numbers in prophecy, it is not a literal figure, but a symbolic, and in this case a rhetorical device. It appears several times in the book of Proverbs. For example, in the Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 15, there are three things that are never satisfied, four never say enough. Now without going into the meaning of the proverb itself, the saying within it was merely used as an idiom to indicate a cumulative effect. In other words, the expression means that something has reached its limit. It is now full and complete. This was God's warning of doom to the ancient people of Israel here in Amos and these seven other wicked nations that God's patience had run out and that they had stubbornly and arrogantly persisted in their sin with no repentance. And so now there would be no turning back if they refused to repent. God's judgment would soon come. This is a warning that is thundered in several places in the Bible. And it echoes down through time to those of us today who are living in sin and refuse to repent and turn away from our sin. Now the Bible teaches us that God's patience and His mercy have a limit. There is a line which one can cross where there is no turning back. There is a spiritual deadline for every person and all peoples. There comes a time when one manifests such a hardened heart toward God and about his or her sin that time runs out and the door of mercy closes forever. After Amos pronounces punishment upon the people, now he reminds them that their judgment did not come without warning and many warnings at that. I want you to notice five times in chapter 4 here, Amos repeats the phrase, Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He, for example, reminds them that God had sent famine. He took away their bread. Yet you have not returned to me, he says in verse 6. He also sent drought and caused them to wander from city to city looking for water and they could not find enough. Verse 8, yet you have not returned to me. He destroyed their crops through blight and by pestilence. Yet, verse 9 declares, you have not returned to me, says the Lord. And then he says that he brought war and caused their young men to die by the sword. Still, he says, you have not returned to me. And still yet, he sent natural disasters such as earthquakes, which destroyed their cities in the fashion of ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. But even all of this had not driven them to repentance. Well, what else was God to do? How else was God to get their attention? And now in yet one more overture of divine love and mercy... God sends them Amos to warn them and plead with them to repent. And if they did not, a terrible disaster would fall upon them. God's judgment would come. Now, friend, we need to remember God's patience and mercy is much longer than even yours and mine, believe it or not. God has striven with man for millennia. And He gives every one of us more chances and more opportunities to repent of our sins and turn to Him than any of us deserve. We all deserve judgment for our sins. But God has stayed His hand for a time and He gives us multiplied opportunities to turn from our sins throughout our life. But eventually time runs out. And we don't like to think about that. We like to think about God's grace and His mercy and His love and His patience. But we don't like to think about 
His judgment and His patience coming to an end. Some people say, oh, well, God is all love and no judgment. No, if you say God is love, that's true. But it's only part of the truth. God is also holy and God has also promised to judge sin. And if you take half the truth and try to make it be all the truth, you take that half truth and make it be an error. You make it a lie. And that's how many people have perverted and exploited the love and the mercy of God. There comes a time when one stubbornly persists in sin, time runs out. God gives up. Mercy's door is shut. Proverbs 29 and verse 1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. It's a dangerous thing to try the patience of God, and people are doing it every day. We're warned in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should, underscore it now, come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You see, God's patience has tarried a long time, but time is running short. How long has God been waiting on you? How long has God been showering you with blessings and allowing you to live your life as you see fit without meeting His judgment? How many warning signs has God put along the pathway of your life telling you to turn around? And are you ignoring them? Do you just assume that since you've gotten away with it until now that God's judgment will never come? Do you have the idea that God is so infinitely merciful that He'll just let it go and forgive and forget with no change and no repentance on your part? If so, you are under a delusion. Friend, the day of the Lord is coming. God is keeping a record. Unrepented of sin will not pass before God's judgment bar. We must not press God's patience to its limit. So how do you look at sin? What are you doing about your sin? Are you tempting God? Friend, I want you to see that the sins that Amos condemned were not sins that were so great God could not forgive them. He isn't saying that some sins are not a very big deal and others rise to a higher level. And he's not saying that they had exceeded some set number of sins that God would tolerate as though some sin is okay, just not too much. Friend, all sin is serious. And all sin is an offense to God and requites the judgment of God. All sin. What Amos is saying is that their repeated refusal to repent of their sins meant that God's patience had run out. And judgment day will come. It's not a matter of how great your sins are or how small you think they may be. The question is, what are you doing about your sin no matter what it may be? What's your response to sin? What's your attitude about sin? Refusing to repent of any sin is a deadly proposition in the eyes of God. Knowingly holding on to any sin is stubborn rebellion against God. And friend, God won't put up with that. Now you may think, well, my sins are not as bad as someone else's. But they are if you refuse to repent of them. God will forgive the murderer who repents before he'll forgive the gossip or the tax cheat who refuses to repent. God will forgive the adulterer who humbly comes to him in obedience to his word and turns away from his or her sin. 
before he'll forgive the seemingly smallest sin that one refuses to let go of and stubbornly holds on to it. You know, the Apostle John said that there is a sin not unto death, and then he warns that there is a sin that is unto death in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. Now, if you go to that passage, and if you look at what John is talking about throughout that first epistle, what you'll find is that the sin unto death is not some particular sin that just rises to some level that exceeds others. The sin unto death is simply a sin that one refuses to confess and repent of. So it doesn't matter if you think your sin is big or small. It doesn't matter if you think your sin rises to some level or if it's something that God will just overlook. Don't be deceived. It's not a matter of what sin you've committed. It's a matter of what are you doing about the sin you've committed no matter what it is. What is your attitude towards sin? So I ask you today, what is the state of your life and your soul? Will God say to you, for three sins and for four, I will not turn away your punishment? Because despite a lifetime of warnings, despite the warnings of His Word, the wooing of His Spirit through the Word, despite all of the influences He's placed in your life to draw you to Him, despite His patience, despite His forbearance, you have refused to repent. You have stubbornly dug in your heels and you refuse to turn away from sin. Amos said the people could repent and turn to God. But the time was quickly approaching when they could no longer repent and judgment day would come. Is that day getting closer for you? As Amos said, prepare to meet your God. We will meet Him in judgment. And if we have not repented of our sins and submitted to Him in gospel obedience, we will face His eternal wrath. And that's not something to take lightly. That's not something to dismiss or to laugh at or to shrug your shoulders about. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the Hebrew writer said. So I hope you'll think about that, friend. And if you're living in sin, turn away from your sin and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your sins washed away in His blood by being baptized into Him and be saved and be saved today.
As our time draws to a close, I want you to think about your life. Are you living in rebellion to God, resisting Jesus Christ and His Lordship over your life? I want to urge you to repent while you can. Won't you come to Him in humble obedience? Place your faith in Him as the Son of God. You have not committed any sin that He will not forgive. If you will come to Him in obedient faith, believe that He is who He claims to be, the Son of God who died for you, was buried, and rose again. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized in water to have your sins washed away and to be added to His body. And if you've done that but you've departed from the faith, you're not living as you ought to, you need to return to God. He's waited on you patiently, but time is running out. You need to come to Him while you can and confess your sin and repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you and be restored to His service. I hope and I pray you'll do that today. If you'd like a copy of our lesson, a free transcript, so you can go back and review it or study it or share it with others, we'll be happy to send it to you. Simply ask for the lesson by the title, For Three Sins and for Four, and we'll get that copy on its way. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll make your plans to join me back here next time, if the Lord wills. In the meantime, find us online, ltbstv.org, and be sure to follow and share our social media accounts. We'd be very thankful if you would do that. Tell someone else this week about the program and have them watch next time. Again, until we meet again, I pray the Lord will bless you and keep you safe, and we'll see you next time. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.